just uh, want to take a moment. It's a privilege to introduce our speaker today. And some of you are like, oh, finally, somebody else. <laughs> um, but a couple things. Many, many years ago, the Lord saved me as a 17-year-old. I came to a church like this. I had no idea what it meant to read the Bible, to be born again. And it was a joy to come to know the Lord, be forgiven. And it just was the only thing I wanted to do was help other people find Jesus. And when I found out about this Cairn University, which was called Philadelphia College of Bible back then, the Lord opened the door for me to go there. And I remember what a blessing it was to study and the, the impact the teachers had sharing God's word with me. And so 25 years ago, the Lord opened the door for me to teach there. And for the last 25 years, I've had the joy of watching young men and women come and and so many of them on fire for Christ and wanting to grow and learn. And one of those young men is Shizu. I've known him for a long time now and, and just seen the hand of the Lord upon him, seen his love for the word, his desire to see people come to know Jesus, a genuine transformed brother. And to just have time with him, to watch him fall in love with a young lady by the name of Lindsay, who's now his wife, um, took her a little longer to get in the game there. And he can tell you that story. It took her about a year. But um, I had the joy of um, doing their wedding, and his opening line was, Lindsay, thank you for saying yes after a year. So <laughs> praise the Lord. So this morning, we're really excited. The Bible teaches us that we shouldn't put our faith in any man, but in mm -hmm. God, who has richly gifted different people with the Spirit. And so let's welcome Shizu. He's one of our elders, and we thank God for him. And I know you're going to get a blessing from what God speaks to us through him. Thank you, brother. You don't need Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> what Tom didn't share, I shared this in the last service, but what Tom didn't share was that he was kind of the, he was, he was kind of the, uh, the date doctor for Lindsay and I. Gave us some tips. <laughs> Gave me a lot of tips. Kind of coached me through that process a little bit. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd recommend him. To anyone. <laughs> but it is such a joy to be with you guys this morning once again. And man, I was just sharing, I love this church. It has changed my wife, my faith, my wife's faith in ways that I can't even explain. Our lives have been, God has taken us to a new place, even in our own marriage. And so I'm grateful for you guys. Thank you, thank you for uh, the leadership to, to allow me to, to be up here. And we're going to be doing 3 John this morning, probably one of the most neglected letters that you might try to find online, but uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful letter, a very affectionate letter. And, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to take one from the ushers that are coming forth with it. The Word of God, this book is powerful. A couple thousand years ago, God wrote a book, and he used human authors to do it, and he, and he instructed to them what he wanted us to know, and that that is where we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And several years ago, he, the Lord Jesus Christ came into my life, and he saved me. He called me his son while I was his enemy, called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light, and now I belong to him. And so we, we, we find him in his word. And so that's why, if you don't have a Bible, please take it home with you. It is the holy word of God, this book has power. It'll change your life. It'll build up your faith, give you greater confidence on, on being a Christian. And so, again, today I have the distinct privilege on preaching to you an entire book of the Bible. Third John was likely written about 85 to 95 A.D. It was written around the same time John wrote First and Second John. 
And this is probably the most affectionate letter in the entire Bible. John refers to himself as the elder. And some commentators say that, you know, that was a sign of John really kind of showing humility because he took his elder or his, um, his apostle hat off and, 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 and uh, described himself as the elder of the church. So this is a church that, that John pastored, and he's writing it to a guy named Gaius, who is a member, maybe even a leader within the local church. But what is clear is that John loves this brother. I mean, he's crazy about him. He is, and we're going to see it. He, he says it over and over, beloved, 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 beloved. Up to five times he uses that same word in this letter. And so he's writing this letter of, uh, this affectionate letter to him, but it's also a letter of encouragement. Because guys will go to church maybe on a Sunday, and they, they had house churches back then. He would go to church, and he would see he would see his brothers and sisters in Christ that he's serving in ministry with all, all week long. Because, you know, back then, they, they, they didn't just go to church on Sundays. They were, doing, they, were, they were all about the Lord's business every day. You know, part of that was also because of being under severe uh, persecution under, under the Roman Empire. But he would go to church, and he'd see these people that he loves and adores. Then he looks across the room, and he sees a guy named Diotrephes. And we're going to read about him in this letter. But Diotrephes was someone that really tore up Gaius. And not only Gaius, that brother tore up the church. And so this letter is a letter of encouragement to Gaius. Saying, Gaius, I'm going to commend you for your faithfulness. We're going to see that Gaius was not only loved like crazy by John, but he was loved like crazy by everyone. He was loved. He was loved by all. And then he, and then he condemns Diotrephes. And then again, he concludes by commending another brother named Demetrius, and we'll see why. And so, while combating a church heresy in the first century church, um, that Jesus didn't have a body, and he, John devotes that letter to 1 John, or that, that case, that defense to 1 John, and then the next two letters were very personal. And so, when we read this letter, we'll see that there's three sections that's broken down. And the first section we're going to look at is Christ and his gospel enables us to love and be loved. If you want to, I don't have a clicker, do I? No. Um, and we're also going to note, notice here that he uses the word truth six times, six times, but with two primary meanings. Either the word truth represents Christ or the gospel. For example, in verse 8, um, we see that uh, John says, we are fellow workers with the truth. The truth is there personified as Christ. But then we see numerous times in the letter, we'll see that John will mention walking in the truth. And that is synonymous for the gospel. So all three of these points that I'm going to be li listing for us throughout the sermon um, revolves around Christ and his gospel. So before I read the first four verses, let me just say a word of prayer for us. Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your son in whom we have eternal life and redemption and forgiveness of sins. Lord, because of Jesus, I have a hope that this world cannot offer and so, Lord, I pray that this hope would spread rapidly in this room right now. For those of us who have this hope, I pray that you would strengthen their hope. For those of us who don't even know this hope, that, that this sounds like craziness, that I don't even believe this stuff, I pray that you would 
you would awaken them and give them the hope everlasting, the hope that cannot be shaken, that is a foundation that will, Lord, where there's a hope where you will meet us in our darkest hour, where we can, Lord, celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, may this hope be magnified today, and we thank you. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. He says, let me read it first before I go in. Sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in truth. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius. John, as I said, John calls Gaius his beloved. And he says it, he says the word itself is used five times, but he used beloved four times. He says it, beloved, 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 beloved. And what that literally means is dear friend, my dear friend. And Gaius was a common name back then too, like Shiju is today, you know. <laughs> What's so funny? Why are you guys laughing? Is that supposed to be a joke? No. Uh, and he says, Gaius, you are my dear friend, and I love you in Christ. So he's not saying, Gaius, you are my dear friend, and you know that this is true. Like, like, like when we go somewhere, like when you go out with your friends that you haven't seen in a while, and, and you talk to your friend, like, yeah, a long time no see, man, you know I love you, right? I mean, I never call you, but you know I love you, right? That's not what guys is saying. That's not what John's saying. John's saying, Gaius, my dear friend in Christ, whom I love in truth, this truth that he's talking about. He's saying, Gaius, I love you so much with the same affection that Jesus Christ has for you and I, that Christ entered human history on a rescue mission and to pluck us out of, his, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That, that same affection, that Christ died for us, that same love, which is the highest form of love we see in the New Testament, that same love is the kind of love I have for you, whom I love in the gospel. Because of the gospel, Gaius, I love you. And through the gospel, I love you. And for the gospel, I love you. In other words, because Jesus has purchased us by his costly blood, I love you with the same affection Jesus has for you, has for me. We are co-heirs with Christ, and we share in the inheritance of being, of both being God's worthy servants. So this is interesting because John is like, he's going, he's, he's, he's kind of going crazy right now. He's, he's really using this love word a little, maybe a little too much. We, some, some might say. But this is John the Apostle. This is the New Testament. Let me ask you, when, when was the last time you told a brother or sister you loved them? When was the last time you said, hey, brother, I just want you to know I love you. I love you in Christ. So my problem is that I say it a little too much. I'll be honest. I, I, you just ask around. I'm like, dude, chill with that. You need to be careful. And, and, I, and I, don't, I just, you know, I usually say to brothers and my wife, of course, and hopefully you say it to your spouses, but, um, 
but yeah, I, I do. I try to say, but I do, I do probably need to like you know take it down a notch, especially if you talk to a new Christian and they just start coming to church and you say, "Yo, brother, I love you, man." What the heck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> and so, um, he, but but John, he's clearly he's making it very clear here. We got to know how to love one another because this love is not just like a like a like a wishful thinking or like a quiver like Tom like Pastor Tom always says like a quiver in our liver kind of love like or like a love that's fleeting but it's a it's a steadfast love a solid love a love that's unchangeable because it's founded in Christ and so when we can love someone it's 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 not the kind of love that we just experience through romance or or whatnot but it's the love that that is founded by God Himself. And so this is the kind of love we are to practice with one another, with our brothers and our sisters. Hey, I love you. All right, maybe, maybe love you, bro, can work out too. You know, like, I love you, maybe, maybe more affectionate, but love you, bro. You know, I like to say love you, bro, because then it doesn't sound as confrontational. But, um, and then we see John's prayer for Gaius is that he would prosper in all respects and be in good health just as his soul prospers. John's desire is for Gaius to literally, that's what he, when he says, when he says, where is it, where is it, where is it? When he says that, that you may prosper, the word prosper literally means to succeed. He says, my desire for you guys is that you would literally succeed in all respects and be in good health, just as your soul succeeds. So Gaius he was flourishing. He was a successful Christian. He had a successful spiritual life. And John's prayer that he would grow successful in everything that comes his way. But let's be careful here. Don't misinterpret what some might try to do and say that, well, that's the prosperity gospel. That this means that, oh, you can, you can prosper. Prospering means here that, that if, if, you're, um, if you're a Christian, then you should probably, you know, you, you, if you're a Christian and you're succeeding, then you should have a nice car Make six figures. You should have a nice house. No, that's not what he's saying here. I'm sorry. He, he actually, what he's saying is that he makes a distinction between his soul prospering, which pertains to a spiritual life, and then prospering in good health. The, the prosperity gospel is not the gospel of Christ, nor is that what John is trying to communicate here. But we do know that John, however, is... is or that Gaius was an incredibly hospitable man. You'll see that in the letter. Incredibly hospitable. <clears throat> in fact, he had the reputation of being kind of crazy hospitable. When you see him, when we read the letter, he, he's loved by all because he was obsessed with wanting to take care of people. So we'll read about these strangers in this letter and these strangers who were traveling preachers, just traveling the globe, preaching the gospel. They would come to Gaius and they couldn't get away from Gaius. Because Gaius was obsessed with trying to love them. And not only did he throw money at them, I, don't, I hope he didn't throw it at them, but, but he, not only did he give them money, he, it says that he clothed them. One commentator says back then when we talked about hospitality, they would clothe you, they would take you in, they would, they, would, they would do whatever it took to make sure you had no setbacks for the work of the ministry. And that's what Gaius was doing. And so, so some would say, so, so what, what, could be, what we could be seeing here is that because Gaius was prospering so much and not only prospering in his spiritual life, but prospering in how much he took care of them, if, if he was rich, 
John could be saying, because you're rich and, you, and you're giving all your money away, I'm going to pray that you get more rich so you can keep giving more money away because you're so good at it. John knew that Gaius' spiritual life was prospering because in verse 3, the brothers told John about how he is prospering, how he is walking in the truth. And that's how we know that Gaius was obsessed with taking care of people. So let me ask you, church, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with loving others? Because this is interesting. There's a couple of things to note here. He wants Gaius to prosper. I mean, what was the last time we asked where we, we prayed for someone to prosper. Like, man, I pray for Brother John, and I pray that he would prosper in his faith. I pray, Lord, that you would bless him with a good family. Lord, I pray that he would prosper. Or, or let's make it even more practical. What if we, uh, what about in the marketplace? You know, I work in corporate. What about when you see a promotion? Or, when you, when you're, or if you're in college and you see somebody make, a, make the sports team and you, and you couldn't make it or they, or they get the starting position, what's your knee-jerk reaction? Is it, oh, it's not fair. I wanted that, you know? Or is it like, praise the Lord. I'm so glad. I'm so happy for you, man. What can I do to help support you? You know, maybe not going a little, not, maybe not trying to sound weird, but, but to the point of like, that's great. What's your, what, where's your heart at at the moment? Is it like John's toward Gaius? Do you wish the best for them? When you see your brothers and sisters growing exponentially in their knowledge and character here at Riverstone, what's your immediate reaction? Is it like, oh man, like I wish I had that kind of recognition? Like, oh man, like uh, uh, why can't I grow as much as he's growing? Like, wait, why can't I know this kind of what's what's your what's your reaction? Is it godly? Is it is it for the sake of the gospel? Is it for the for the unity of the church? Or is it a tear down? And we'll see here, there's a brother named Diotrephes who, loved, who was more interested in tearing down. Verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. I love this verse. Hear this, church. We know that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you have a relationship with Christ, There is no no joy that that could even measure. No man, no guy, no relationship, no job, no car, no nothing in this life could compare to knowing Christ. Joy eternal, joy everlasting. But the second highest form of joy, read it, verse 4. To know your children are walking in the truth. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm telling you, you are missing out on the greatest life you could ever live in this world. There's no greater life. Because not only do you get to know Christ, but part of the package with being a Christian is that you get to see other people grow and your, your own salvation, your own faith in Christ is being built up when you see the brethren grow. You, you get to get your hands dirty in people's lives and, and, and be vulnerable with them. You get to f- suffer with them. You get to be genuine and real and authentic. This is the gospel. It, it uncovers the, the superficiality, the, 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 the ignorance, the, you know, the, the, the world that's, that's we live behind a screen kind of idea, but it's, the gospel demands for us to, 
to, be, to take the greatest risk, to take a risk, because Christ took the greatest risk on the, claw, on the cross when he was murdered on a tree on our behalf. And because he did that, we too are called to take risks. And he says here, this is my greatest joy, Gaius, to know my children are walking in the truth. If Christ is king over your life and you have given your life to him, then you need to get involved in people's lives right now. If you're not in a small group, then you need to join one right now. I mean literally right now. No, I'm kidding. Otherwise, you are missing out on one of the greatest blessings that come with the package of being a Christian. That is witnessing your brothers and sisters around you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you say you love Jesus, but you don't even have any friends that are Christians, nor do you even have an interest in having Christian friends, why are you wasting your salvation? God saved us so we could be on this planet and glorify him by being faithful to the church, by being loved, by, by loving affectionately, by, by giving, laying our lives down for one another. Or, are, or is your life the American Christian life where we're all, it's, it's autonomous, it's all about me-ism, that, that, that what America tells us, it's all about you, it's about me, myself, and I kind of mentality. It cost God his life for you to be in relationship with the Father. And it cost God his life for you to, for the first time in your life, be in relationship with people who understand and have tasted the kindness of God that has led you to repentance. It is only in this context where you will learn how to make disciples. It is only in this context where you will one day be able to say, I have no greater joy but to see my spiritual children or even my biological children walking in the truth. But there may be some of you here today who feel like you're like in a spiritual rut. You know you're a Christian, but you feel such apathy towards seeking God. You don't care to read your Bible or even like meeting with the Lord. Coming to church is, is cute because we have Rwandan coffee back there. And you know it's good for your kids and, and, uh, and your family. And, and maybe actually you're even in a small group because you know it's, it's the right thing to do. But yet you know better than me that if you looked internally that you feel absolutely nothing for the Lord. You've got no longing, no inclination, no desire for him. But you know God has said, you know the truth. So let me then ask you, friend, this question, or questions. Who are you discipling? Or better yet, how are you contributing to the needs of the saints? Because perhaps you have lost your joy that exists only for those who are disciple-making, for those who are loving others, and who, for those who are investing in the kingdom of God. And if you are really in a rut, I plead with you, talk to us. After the service, come to me. Talk to me. Share this struggle with someone. Don't make it all about you. 
The world wants you to make it all about you. Christ says it's not about you, it's about him. Allow the body to do its rightful work. The scriptures tell us that when, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, listen church, we all have, we're a big body, some of you are the nose, hands, legs, feet, ears, but get this, when one member of the body suffers, what's the verse? We all suffer. Now that we have seen that Christ and his gospel inspires and enables us to love and be loved, let's move now to the second section of this letter. Christ and his gospel inspires and enables us to love strangers. Oh no, I spilled water. Oops, that's embarrassing. Read with me. Hopefully you guys don't get too distracted by this. But um, read with me verses five through eight. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Gaius' commendation of a prosperous soul is due in part to his supporting the brothers who he didn't necessarily know. And note the word here, though, strangers. That's how John refers to the brethren to help put it in perspective that these guys are brothers in Christ, but they were kind of like strangers too because you didn't even know them and, let, and still you were obsessed with caring for them. The word strangers, it's interesting because the word strangers is, is actually part of the word hospitality. The word hospitality literally means to love strangers. It is the same word for strangers, but the word, but the word love is in front of it. So hospitality means loving strangers. Gaius knew they were workers of the truth because they had reported back to John how hospitable and generous Gaius was to them. John affirms Gaius were faithfully supporting the brothers. But then he tells Gaius that he will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That is, please continue to support them in a manner that is worthy of what God expects. So when you see here, in a manner worthy of God, it literally is telling us, in a manner worthy of what God expects. Gaius, these brothers did not accept anything from the non-Christians when they went out to proclaim Christ. Gaius, if we don't support them, who will? The unbeliever? To what end? Hear me on this, church. The glorious church is cared for by the glorious church. Now, John Stott says in his commentary, that this, 
doesn't mean the brothers refuse support from unbelievers that voluntarily may have given them gifts. And it's not a good idea to disagree with John Stott. But, read the text. The text says that they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. It doesn't say it's a sin to do it. He doesn't say it's a sin to do it. But he did say that they did not do it. They accepted nothing. They did not at all ask, nor did they receive from unbelievers any support from them in the cause of preaching Christ crucified. These traveling preachers were loyal to the church as their provider. Why wouldn't these Christian workers receive anything from non-Christians? Because supporting the work of proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a holy calling reserved for God's holy church. And verse 8 tells us that the sender, the brothers, and the receivers, Gaius, well, actually, should say the, the yep, are literally synergized, fellow workers in their commitment to proclaiming the gospel to the world. So when you, when you look at verse eight, when you see fellow workers, it, he's it literally saying so that we may be synergized with one another. in their commitment to proclaiming the gospel to the world. And because both parties are synergized in their commitment to proclaiming the greatest love story ever told, that God became a man and died for humanity so that we can become his sons and daughters, we, the senders and receivers, are to do it with great eagerness and profound affection for the sake of the missionaries and for your sake. One thing that may affect your eternal reward is the way you treat missionaries. Consider Paul's words to the church of Philippi in regard to receiving their support. He says in verses, chapter 4, verses 15 to 17 in Philippians, he says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Notice how the Philippians will receive increases to their eternal rewards, but no other church in Macedonia will. If we don't support our people to advance the kingdom of God, then who will? This is why Riverstone Church considers it a great privilege to be a training ground to launch our people both globally and locally for ministry. I'm a product of this. This church has has equipped me with the tools, with the relationships, with the knowledge, with the foundation to be sent out wherever, Bucks County, wherever. And this is what it's all about. If you have a desire for long-term ministry, for maybe even bivocational ministry, you know, Talk to us. Let's pull you in. If you have a desire, don't quench it or don't run to a different person or another church. Come come to us if you want to advance the gospel because that is our mission here. The church is the equipping station for for the children of God, not academia. The church is the means by which the children of God are sent, not unbelievers. 
I like what Alistair Begg has to say about this. He says, not all of us are called to go, but we are called to give. Not all of us are called to preach, but we are all called to provide. Since being at Riverstone, I had the privilege of going to Lebanon and New York City for evangelism and discipleship training these last two, three years. New York two years ago and then this past year to uh, Lebanon. When raising support for these trips, I recall this passage making my heart shudder when I was thinking about asking my cousin who's not a Christian for support. To support Jesus' church, even if my purpose was to evangelize to them. I mean, what, what, do, we, what do we expect to say? Like, like, hey, I'm going on a missions trip to save people like you. Would you support me? I mean, d- d- does, that, does that work? I mean, and I know we can spin it a little bit. We could say, you know, it's a social justice trip. We're going to go, you know, take care of some homeless people in Lebanon or, you know, or it's, um, or it's a, you know, whatever. I mean, we can sugarcoat it to make it sound pretty so that maybe the unbeliever will believe and then they get those letters and then maybe they'll respond to the gospel. And that's, that's great. I think, I think the motive is, ex- is exemplary. Ex- exemplary. However, I can't escape from what the word is telling me here. I can't ignore what the scripture says. So let me ask you, church. And, and again, I, I know that, that many believers do send out. I mean, some of the curriculums we use kind of touches on that. But, but I think for me personally, my conscience is, 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 is tested against this book when it comes to asking a non-Christian to support the work of the ministry for the kingdom of God. This is our job. We own this job. We should totally capitalize on it. If we are to, let me ask you church then, if we are to send and support missionaries in a manner that God expects of us, how does this look for you? Do you know who your missionaries are here at Riverstone? Because we've got a ton of them. (laughs) Would you be like a guy's? Would you pull a guy's move and say, Come on in. Come over to my place. Let me give you some clothes. Let me give you a, a toothbrush. You know, I don't know. Whatever they, they might want. Would you do whatever it takes to make sure that there's no setbacks for them to continue the work of the ministry? How are you doing in supporting the, the church and the needs of the church? And my challenge to you is be honest about how you're supporting. It's part of the discipleship and steward. It's part of being Christian. We, we provide for the kingdom of God. God commands us to give, and we give generously with a cheerful heart. Consider Christ. In 2 Corinthians 8, he has that chapter on giving to the church of Corinth, a, a really, really sin-sick, super gifted, but very sinful church, disobedient church, who loved Christ at the same time. He told, he's talking to them about giving, and he said, Guys, consider the grace of our Christ, of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he was in glory, he looked down and he had compassion on man. He became like one of us. He became rich, but then he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. It's the, it's, it's the biblical response of a Christian to give, to give and give and give, because Christ gave it all. It's not so much on how much you give, it's on how much you keep. And we had, you know, at one point I think Pastor Tom and Bob 
preached on the, or talk, discussed the giving ladder and talks, talks about where you're at and how much you're giving and, and, and have, having you consider based on how much you've been giving faithfully, can you give more to the church? Why not? It's God's money after all. So we learn Christ and his gospel enables us to love and be loved. We learn that Christ and his gospel inspires and enables us to love strangers. And finally, Christ and his gospel inspires and enables us to turn away from prideful self-ambition. Let's read these seven minutes. Let's read these these next six verses. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly. And we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Diotrephes. Here we go. Likely a fellow member of Gaius' church. Worked his way up to be a leader. He was probably influential. He pleased the right people to attain his stature. Diotrephes had a strong ambition to be first among them. He was power hungry. He wanted to be recognized for his work. And he refused to accept what John and the fellow pastors of the church had to say. He refused the traveling brothers. Gaius is portrayed as walking in the truth, loving the brothers, and even entertaining strangers. But Diotrephes is seen as loving himself more than others, refusing to welcome the traveling brothers, or discourages others from doing so. And he dismisses them from the church. Diotrephes did not agree with the vision of the church, even though it was the apostle John himself who casted the vision. I mean, the apostle <laughs> casted the vision. He said, eh, I don't agree with the, the apostle. <laughs> this was Diotrephes, ambitious pride <clears throat> or prideful ambition. So how did Diotrephes respond in his disagreement? John tells us in verse 10, he accused John and the leaders with wicked words. He refused to be hospitable to the traveling brothers. He didn't allow or discourage other <clears throat> church members from supporting the traveling brothers, and he banned the traveling brothers from the church. The issue with Diotrephes was not a theological issue, although he might have disguised it as one. His issue was behavioral. This brother was a rebel. He didn't like the way church was being done. He wanted it done his way. He held to a form of godliness and may have made the issue sound like a theological issue. He gave and gave and gave to the church, but now 
because he had to work his way up. He's, there was probably a season where, man, he was blossoming. Everybody, he was probably like a Gaius where they loved him. But now he's trying to take and take and take from the church. Diotrephes is a cancer to the church. He's a consumer by nature. And he's ultimately only seeking his own self-interest. He had a sin issue. Does this sound familiar to us today in the church of America, in the global church? I think it's safe to say that there's a little diatrophies, maybe in, in a lot of us, in all of us, in me definitely. And he definitely exists in many churches. And John calls this behavior evil. He tells the beloved faithful Gaius to not imitate such evil behavior. Rather, he tells Gaius to never lose sight of the mission. Always do good and do not imitate evil. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Anyone who is born of God will do good. And if you are continually practicing evil, then you are not born of God. Christians are called to live differently. And if you're struggling with sin and you're making every effort to fight your sin, then let me encourage you. This is not to condemn you. This is keep fighting. The Christian life is a life of sanctification. We will have seasons of victory. We will have seasons of doubt. We will have seasons of great suffering, great grief, but one thing that the Word of God tells us is to keep fighting. Fight the good fight. Persevere. Don't give up. But the next thing it tells us is to tell someone about it. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. When one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. This is, the, this, this is what church looks like. Pastor Tom always says it. This room is a hospital. It's not, you're not welcome if you're trying to look perfect. Come here with, with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let's suffer and, 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 and fight and serve and love together. But if you call yourself a Christian, that costly name that in America we throw around like candy, and you are in complete habitual sin, with no desire to change or repent, then let me challenge you to actually consider if you actually belong to Christ. It's not heretical and it's not foolish for you to question your faith. It's biblical. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Do a little heart check. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Are you, are, you, is, are you his precious child? And is he precious to you? Let me show you what the evidence of doing good looks like, Gaius. Because remember, John is writing this letter of encouragement to him. Gaius is love, he loves the church, he's faithful. But he looks around and he's like, oh, Diotrephes, what? Why does he always, why does he cause so much trouble at church? I mean, I just, why can't we just live, for, be committed to the mission? So John's encouraging him like he should as a pastor. And he says, 
John, look at Demetrius. I know you don't know Demetrius. You probably don't. But let me encourage you by letting you know that there are other brothers out here that are doing the work of the ministry. Look at Demetrius. He received a good testimony from the Christians around him. He is walking in the truth. And and, um, guys, I'm telling you, his testimony is true. He's the real deal. So be encouraged by that. And then finally, in, in closing, I didn't get to finish the letter last service. I'm not going to do it this service. It's all right. <laughs> Lastly, he says, the one who does evil has not seen God. Pay attention to that verse. The one who does evil, verse 11, has not seen God. As John writes this immediately after exposing Diotrephes' behavior, it is possible John could be alluding to Diotrephes as not being a Christian at all. The one who does evil has not seen, seen God means the one who does evil does not know God. That's 1 John 3.16 says they have, either, they have not either seen God or do they know God. After all, why would we accredit someone to be a Christian when the behavior they demonstrate is in direct opposition to the Christian faith? If you call yourself a Christian but your deeds are evil, by what standard can you make the claim you are a Christian? Because whatever standard you're creating, it's not in here. Do you love to be first? Do you often reject what the leadership of the church has to say or not want to submit to it? Do you lack hospitality and generosity towards Christians you may not know? There are a lot of people in this church, a lot, and we're growing. It's, it's like dumbfounded, like, wow, so many people, I don't even know anyone anymore. And you probably don't know all of them either. How do you treat the ones you don't know? Do you give them, like, like you know, I work in corporate, and even, you know, I went to Council Rock growing up, you know, all the popular kids were the popular kids, and the, and the little, the peasants like us were just like, hi, unless they try to bully me, you know. And, but even in corporate, like the executives are up there and we're down here. And so we're just going our merry way. But in the church, there's no distinction between Greek, Jew, or Gentile. But we are, Christ is all and in all. You don't know anyone. If you don't know someone here, how do you treat them? Do you give them the cold shoulder? Or do you, do you love them? Do you invite yourself to them? Because because the reality is you're going to have to put up with me forever. And I'm going to have to put up with you forever. We're a family. We are a family that because of the blood of Jesus, we have been united forever, eternally. What a glorious hope. And finally, have you seen God? If you're here today, do you know Christ do you have a relationship with him? Do you know what he's all about? Because one day every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and under the earth and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the re- and so I have to pose that question to you because your future is at stake. Your tomorrow is at stake. Your, your eternal destiny is at stake. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you belong to him? Have you tasted his kindness? Are you able to experience the joy that we 
live with all day, er day. That was supposed to be like a slang thing. It's amazing. Let me invite you right now. If you don't know Christ, respond to him. Come to faith in Jesus. Believe. Turn from your sin. Stop living for yourself. Bow down to the king because one day you will have to bow down to him. Do it now because it is the greatest life you could ever live. I am a living product of that. So in closing, we're going to wrap up in prayer. I just want to invite you guys, if you don't know Christ today, call upon him. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The gospel is so simple that even a child could believe it, but it's so complex that the scholars are still trying to figure things out. The, the gospel is a mystery, but it is a mystery revealed to us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Lord, would you advance your church right now, right here at Riverstone? Would you bless us abundantly, Lord, with more laborers, more people who are serious about the gospel, who are serious about Jesus and wanting to love him and please him in everything. Lord, we, I plead with you that you would save, that you would add, add to your church as you did like crazy in the first century that you are doing right now. Lord, we love you, we praise you. Pray that you would strengthen us this week, protect us from the evil one. Help us, Lord, to love the body of Christ as Gaius did, as you tell us to in your word. Help us to be faithful to the church. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.